ha-ha, I have notes today. <laughs> so they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And so in case there weren't any notes, I also had these. But we don't need them. So there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. There's just a Christian that's growing and learning from their mistakes. So amen? Oh, so every, every presidential candidacy that we've had, at least in this country, uh, as far as I know, maybe, maybe not the early founding father ones, but in recent history at least, they more or less start in the same way. And it's a way that for, for many of us we probably don't see all that time. There's a couple that you might remember, but, but usually every single president starts by making an announcement that he's going to run or she's going to run. Right? And that usually happens in a, regardless of how big of a deal the candidate is, in a, in a more subtle place. Right, it's their hometown. Maybe it's a congressman who is in Washington, D.C., but they're not announcing their candidacy from the steps of the Capitol. They're going to go back to their hometown, no matter how big or how small it is, and they're going to have a, a few people there. It's weird. There's sometimes we've had these, these footages of people that are really well-known across the globe announcing their candidacy, but the, the crowd is not that large, right? It's, just, it's a couple people from the hometown, some family, some friends. They go somewhere where they're known and where they're loved and where, where the people that, that are there have known them for a long time and are in support of them. They want to be on their home turf. And so they fly to whatever state they're from. Right? I'm pretty sure Biden announced from Delaware. Um, when Trump ran, he announced it from the tower, which is where he resided, where he has, has a residence. He just kind of came down the escalator, right? So wherever the president happens to be from, that's where they make the announcement. They go back to their home place. And it starts in this humble, small way. And then it takes off, right? We, we, we see in, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, although he's not running for president, right? He's running for a position that he already holds. He's essentially announcing his position. Jesus does the same thing as our modern-day presidents do. Right? We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we are now in, in the chapter 3 to 4 range of that Gospel. And what we see is we move from the birth narrative in the first week to the teenage Jesus in the second week to now the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Right? And, and when Jesus begins his public ministry, he does it in a way that is shocking. He goes back to his hometown and he says some things that from the very beginning, right out the gate... Get the, get the crowd there so mad at him, it actually talks about them feeling the wrath of the people. Right? That's usually not how a candidacy announcement goes. Right? If you, whether you're running for president or you're announcing yourself as the king of the world, right? usually when you do it in your hometown, you do it so that there's friends in favor. Well, it doesn't work that way for Jesus in the way that it works for most presidents. Things are a little bit different for him. And so this morning, I want to look at this announcement that he makes. And I want to ask ourselves, why is it so shocking to the people that heard it at the time? But then I want to back up a little bit before he makes the announcement, because I want to look at the statement that he makes that is so shocking and controversial. And I want to understand why he makes it and why he gets to make it. In other words, what gives Jesus the right to say the angering and shocking thing that he says. And what does it mean for us today? And so let's begin. We'll stand for our main text this morning. Uh, as a reminder, we, we don't stand for any other reason than we just have a reverence for God's words. So and when we read our main text, you know, we, we like to stand up as we hear from it. And we're going to look at this morning Luke 16 through 21, or 4, 16 through 21. And then we'll go back and look at some other texts as well. This is from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 4, verse 16. 
And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So this takes place right after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We'll get to that in, in just a little bit, and, and there's some significance there. It's his first act of public ministry. Right? He gets out of the wilderness. He gets over the temptations that we'll look at in just a, a short while, and he starts to get into some of the synagogues and teaches a little bit, and then he gets back to his hometown. And when he's back in his hometown, he's just a, a Jewish man in his hometown, and so during worship, he's asked to read. In the same way, I might ask one of you guys to do a, a reading on Christmas Eve, if you are here, right? He gets up and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it and he looks and he finds this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and so forth. And he, he reads it and he rolls it up and he hands it back to the attendant. So far, so good, right? No controversial Jesus here. And he sits down and then he says this phrase, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the, the freedom bringing, the captive releasing, the broken-hearted binding Messiah, um, hi, it's me, I'm here. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He's announcing himself as God, which is far more controversial than simply reading from the book of Isaiah. And so the people react in a way that is just infuriating. Right? It gets towards the end, and he actually talks about the fact that they, in, 20, in verse 28, the whole synagogue was filled with wrath, and they drive him out of his hometown. The man gets booted from his, from his place, from his place where he grew up, simply for making this seemingly innocent but massively profound statement. It angers the people. Who is this guy? They say, Isn't he the son of Joseph? What right does he have to make such crazy proclamations, right? And why shouldn't they be mad? It's an insane thing to say. Imagine if I started reading some prophecies about, you know, and then your God shall be, I, I will be your God, you will be my people, and then I finished and I closed up and I said, by the way, I'm here. Jesus 2.0. We're all going home. Anybody here, right? Like some, some of the elders are already calling Presbytery right now about, you know, just because of the thought that I might say something that crazy. But that's what it is. He announces himself as, as God. Of course they would be mad. Right? So how is it that Jesus is able to make this statement? The last time we checked in on Jesus, he was a 12-year-old teenager just coming to terms with his identity. He was figuring out the human Jesus, body and mind, was starting to discover who he was. Well, he's figured it out. And he's letting everybody know just exactly who he is to the fury of all of the people that he grew up with. Right? So there's, there's two major accounts that take place between 12-year-old Jesus and megalomaniac, if he's, if he's not right, Jesus. Right? Of course, we know who he is, so he's not. 
Right? There's two things that take place in between, and we're going to look at both of them today. The first is that John shows up out of the desert and randomly starts to baptize people. Right? And the second is, we'll get, we'll get to that when we get to the second. So let's just take a quick look at, at two parts of chapter 3 that kind of give us some insight as to happening before he makes this crazy announcement. This is chapter 3, verse 3. And then he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then just a couple verses down in 21, after it goes over some detail there, now when all the people were being baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we see two, two things happening here. Number one, John comes out of the woodworks, right? He's the weirdo guy. He shows up out of the desert eating locusts like a loon, and he starts to proclaim a baptism of repentance. He starts to call people to be baptized in the Jordan River. And it's an odd thing considering the time frame of where we are because baptism wasn't at that time what it is today. Today we, we baptize. If you come to faith, right, or if you're a baby here in the Presbyterian Church, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, there, the Son was there, but not really yet, right? No one knew. So what is this baptism thing even doing here in this time period? There was a, a bit of a history of baptism, but it wasn't so much the meaning that we think of today. Back then, you would go into the river to be cleansed, right? In the Jewish culture, everything was about uncleanliness. You, you might be doing something, or maybe you uh, dealt with a, a dead body, or whatever, whatever, whatever was going on that would make you ceremonially unclean, and so you would wash. And so there's, there's a history of kind of washing for cleanliness, but this idea of baptism of repentance is something that comes onto the scene with John, and we have to wonder, well, why? Why is John baptizing? And, and there's the, the easy answer is, well, because God told him to, right? <laughs> because God says, you know, the, the word of the Lord came to John, and then he started doing it. So you could say, well, God told John, baptize people, and John said, okay, I'll go do that, right? But why would God do that? There's simply just got to be something more going on here. See, John began baptizing people in the Jordan River. And the location of that baptism is immensely significant. Because what else happens significantly in Israelite history in the Jordan River? The Jordan marks the beginning of the promised land. When the people are called out of Egypt and they wander until they get to the cusp of the promised land, both the first time when they are denied entry because of their lack of faith, and then after the 40 years of wandering through the desert again, right, the crossing of the Jordan signifies the entry into the promised land that God has promised his people. Right? And when they, before they go in, there's, there's all kinds of scripture where they are at the beginning of that of that border before they get to cross, and there's all kinds of stuff to prepare, and, and they finally get to cross in, and they're told what they need to do when they go in. This is the land that God has given them, where they're supposed to live as God's people, in perfect harmony with one another. It is the beginning of God ushering in his new kingdom. He's calling them to a life under him, not a life apart from him. And so when they enter the promised land in Israelite history, they don't in any way do the things that they are supposed to do, right? We, we know that the rest of the Old Testament is this long-seated history 
of Israel's unfaithfulness and inability to follow God in the way that he calls them to. They fail at every turn. They fail to trust in him. They fail to rely on him. They fail to walk in his ways and by his power. They fail to wait on the Lord in every way imaginable. The people of God fail. That's why we have things like the exiles eventually, where they are pulled out of the the land into, you know, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or various kings afterwards or the oppression that they're experiencing in Jesus' time under Rome. Those are all a result of the unfaithfulness of God's people and God's resulting discipline of them. And so here's here's John the Baptist at the River Jordan calling people to a baptism. And here's why it's significant. It's a re-beginning. Saying, listen, we, we as God's people walked through this water once and we're supposed to walk into faithfulness. And we didn't. We failed over and over and over again. I, I am telling you, there is a Messiah on the verge of coming. As a matter of fact, he's already, he's already kind of here, and so we need to prepare. That's why it says that John the Baptist prepares the way. So come and be baptized. Go back through. Go through that river again. But this time, things will be different. Are they going to be different because of who we are? Are we going to be better this time? No. This time they're different because a Messiah is coming. And so the the baptism of the people has a significance and is rooted in the history. They are re-entering through the river. But this time it's different. And that's why we see Jesus gets baptized too. That's the the real crazy part. Because if it's a baptism of repentance, well, why on earth is Jesus getting baptized? Does Jesus have anything to repent about? Well, no. No. There's no godly reason why Jesus needs to go through baptism. None. But yet he does. Jesus goes to John, and we know that John baptizes Jesus. And the baptism accomplishes two things. Number one, it's kind of an obvious nod from heaven, right? You would imagine that there's a bunch of people there being baptized. Jesus comes. He's one of them. But when Jesus comes back up after being submerged, the heavens open up and a voice comes and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you want to bet that everyone who was there as a witness to that was probably became a follower of Jesus? Right? If you're hanging out by the river and you're being baptized and your friends are being baptized and then this Jesus guy gets in and the heavens open up and God, God comes down and says, this is my son with whom I am pleased you're probably like, yeah, I'm going to follow him and see what happens next, right? I don't know who he is, but heaven, voice, I'm going with Jesus, right? So you probably had a whole bunch of followers from that. It gave him some, some street cred right off the bat, right? Imagine if I started to preach, and before I preached, the heavens opened up, and God came down and said, this is my preacher. Whatever he says with it, I'm well pleased, and it's important. No one here would tune out what I said next. You would be paying attention like no one's business. And so Jesus gets some credibility from that. He's he's given the affirmation of the Father. He gets the ultimate nod. But the other purpose was that it was Jesus beginning through the promised land as well. Just like the Israelites years ago. When Jesus is baptized, Jesus is entering the arena. And just like 
like they entered but failed, Jesus enters, and we're going to see something very different take place. Right? And so, just like the Israelites crossed into the land with all the expectation and the hope of an obedient people, so now Jesus metaphorically crosses in. He is entering the playing field. Right? Everybody else got in there and didn't get it right, but Jesus is going to come in and do something different. And so the next part of Luke's gospel is meant to tell us exactly how that looks, and that is the temptation of Jesus. And so let's look at the temptation of Jesus in that light and see what it says. Starting in 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So there's three, three different times that the temptation happens. And at this point, we, we have to understand something that we briefly mentioned last week, but is worth reiterating. There, there's this ancient heresy that you, you might have never heard of the term, but you'll understand what it is, called docetism. And docetism is the, the heresy that Christ, the belief that Christ only seemed to be a man. That when Jesus came to earth, that he was fully God and fully man. And what that meant is that, well, God came, he came down as God, and he had the appearance of a man. Right? Maybe even had actual body of some kind, inhabited matter in some kind of a way. Right? And this is an inaccurate heresy. This isn't the way we think of Jesus biblically. But, oh boy, do we like to think it without actually thinking it. And here's, here's where this goes. We tend to think that Jesus' body was human, but his mind was divine, right? That his mind, his emotions, his, his mental capacities, his intellect always had the fullness of divinity and never the fullness of humanity. That's the way we, if, if you're really honest with yourselves, you don't want to think this, but it's kind of like the only way we can get our grasp around this fully one and fully the other, right? Yeah, he was, he was fully man, 100% human, but, you know, when he thought, he always thought with the fullness of divinity. And that's not true. God's full humanity includes his mind. That's why last week we talked about teenage Jesus actually discovering who he was. There's a certain degree to which his humanity lays aside his divinity in, in, in any given moment. He surrenders it to God, right? Jesus was bodily and mentally 100% a human being. Hebrews 2.7, in every respect as we are, except without sin. Philippians 2.7, Christ's human likeness 
was absolute. John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. You hear Jesus talk about this all the time. All that he does, everything, every power that he has is, is given to him by the Father. He operates on earth under the power of God the Father. Which means he lays in any given moment. He has, he possesses the full divinity of God, but he lays some of it aside at various points in time and functions as a full human. And so when we hear Jesus was tempted, he was actually tempted. It's not like he was just put through the same physical thing we would be put through, but had Jesus' mind. Because that would be easy, right? It'd be so easy to overcome temptation if you, if you, were, if you were thinking like God. But he's thinking like human. He felt the brunt of the temptations, the way that humans, the way that we experience the brunt of temptations. He felt hunger and pain the way we did and the psychological turmoil that those things do in your mind. He felt the lack of safety, the worry for his life, all those things that we feel that cause us to make decisions in this life are things that Jesus actually experienced on a mental capacity. And so his temptation in the desert was very real, and he experienced it in the exact same way that you and I would have experienced it if we were there, right? There's no divine supermind helping him somehow through to overcome the humanity of how he thinks. And so that's really important to understand. His reliance for strength always in all of the Gospels that we read in his earthly ministry was always on the Father. And so... First, we learn that he was tempted and foodless for 40 days, and then it says the devil spoke, right? That's important. Look at this. For 40 days he was tempted, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him. So what we have to see here is that these temptations are not the sum total of the temptations, right? By the time we hear the interaction that he has with Satan here, he's already been tempted for 40 days, Right? This isn't some like three-question test to get through. A lot of times we think the temptation of Christ was just him in the desert answering three questions against Satan, and it's ding, 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 you're done. No, this is the end. After having suffered for 40 days with no food in the desert, being bombarded one-on-one -on -one with the temptation of Satan in every possible way, after Satan has thrown all that he had at him for, four, for more than a month, almost a month and a half, then, in the midst of his undying hunger, that's when the devil starts to speak these last three things before he moves on from him. So let's look at each of these three really briefly. First, Satan tempts Jesus to use his divinity to make food. This is a real temptation. Have you ever gone 40 days without eating? Right. Satan says, make these rocks be bread. And Jesus knows he can. He hasn't eaten for over a month and he's got rocks, and he's got divine power, and he could make them into not only bread, but delicious bread, maybe some pastries, some donuts, and he could eat them. <coughs> that is in the full power of God, and he, he knows it. Right? And the temptation here is to be unsatisfied with God's provision in your life. For whatever reason, the Father had seen fit in this moment not to provide food in the midst of his hunger. And so it would seem natural to take matters into his own hands and make food for himself. But Jesus has come not to do his will, but to do the Father's 
will. And Jesus trusts the Father. And so Jesus doesn't have a need to take matters into his own hands, no matter how dire it gets. And so his answer demonstrates this. Instead, that he trusts God alone. Right? He recalls the miraculous manna provision of, of God's people in the desert. And he, you know, the, no need could ever cause Jesus to fall away from trusting in God's provision and care. And you see that reflected in his answer to the enemy. Right? So today we don't necessarily starve, but we are tempted to go beyond his word to satisfy our heart's desires all the time. Whenever God isn't moving how we want, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands and get ours in whatever way we can. Instead of waiting on the Lord, and you know, if there's something we want and God doesn't give it to us, we try to get it ourselves instead of saying, well, maybe God doesn't want me to have that for a reason. Whether it's material possessions or you know, health issues or whatever it is, whatever struggle we're going through, or the right job or the, 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 the perfect family, whatever it is that we're seeking that we're not getting. Do you ever think maybe God just doesn't have that for you for a reason in this point? Maybe he's doing something, right? But instead of trusting, a lot of times we're tempted to just take matters into our own hands. And, and Jesus says, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone, right? The Lord provides bread when the Lord wants to provide bread. And until then, I trust him. So not today, Satan. Right. Second temptation, you know, he comes and he shows Christ the whole kingdom and he offers it in exchange for just falling down and worshiping him. He says, everything I have here is mine. And, and, and Satan's not making an empty promise here. We think of like, well, Satan doesn't own anything anyway. Right? Satan is the, the power, the prince of the power of the air. Right? There's a certain level of, of sovereignty that Satan does enjoy Right? It's not ultimate. It's not God's sovereignty. He's of course, pales in comparison to the power of the Lord. But he does have a certain power and a sovereignty over the world. He has a, a certain possession of it, a certain ability to affect things, a certain rule on this earth. And so when he offers Jesus all the kingdoms, it's not an empty offer. Right? And for Jesus, it's certainly not an empty offer. Right? Because Jesus knows what he came to this earth to do. He knows what's coming. He understands what the will of the Father is. He's on the verge of beginning his public ministry. He knows exactly where he's going and when and how. We see that throughout the Gospels as he starts to engage with with the crowds. He knows about the hour to come and that it has not yet come and that it soon will come. Jesus knows when he's going to the cross. And he knows it at this point. And he knows that to simply take a bow before Satan would make all that pain and all that struggle and all that suffering go away. It's the easy way to get the thing that he ultimately wants, the kingdom. And Satan offers him an easy way out. And it's a real temptation to take it. But Jesus doesn't succumb this temptation. He doesn't take the easy way out. Jesus answers him from Deuteronomy 6, and it reflects this. He said, you shall worship God alone. I always wondered, why would, why would Satan make that offer? It's kind of a crummy deal. All he has to do is bow, and then Satan will give up everything he has to Jesus? Well, it's because Satan knows that he ultimately doesn't hold anything. And he would give everything up at the idea of having the God of the universe bow to him. Right? But Jesus doesn't oblige. He says, God is the only one, the Father is the only one that I will worship, no matter how hard it gets. The temptation here is to succumb to the popular culture 
and to do the things that avoid as much as possible pain and allow us to take the easy paths. Aren't we all tempted to take the easy path? Right? It's usually not the good one or the right one. But there's so many times that the easy path just looks so appealing. Why go through the hard work when we could have it easy and pain-free? Right? And Jesus says, no, not today. Right? The third temptation <clears throat> involves manipulating the trust of God. Right? This is, Satan really ramps it up in this one. He actually now quotes scripture himself to Jesus. It's kind of like in the garden, right? When he not doesn't quote scripture, but he talks about like what God has or hasn't said. He starts to take God's words and subtly twist them around. He's, he's doing the same thing here that he did in Genesis. And he goes to Jesus and he, he quotes Psalm 91. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off this road. God's word says he'll catch you. Like if you're really him, then prove it. Here's, here's the scripture, Psalm 91. If you, if you throw yourself off of this, he'll, he'll catch you. He won't let you perish. And, and that's a valid scripture. That really is there. And it says that. Right? And so what's, what does Jesus do? Jesus knows <clears throat> that we don't do things in our own power in order to test the Lord. <clears throat> so he replies from Deuteronomy 6, again, this time verse 16, you shall not put the Lord God to your test, to the test. The message here is don't attempt to force God to act on your own terms. Right? Jesus doesn't fall for the devil's manipulation of scripture here. He holds fast no matter what. And so the devil leaves him. He's free to return from the desert and to begin his ministry. And so ultimately, what is all of this about? And our answer lies in the places that Jesus quotes Scripture from. When he's facing temptation, where in Scripture does he go? He goes to the time of the Israelites under God, when he provided for them with manna and when they failed to trust in him at every possible turn, right? The point that is being made here is that Israel has failed and given in to all three of these temptations. They abandoned God when things got hard, and they tried to get things done their own way. They, they worshipped other gods whenever it was expedient in the world that they found themselves in for the sake of commerce or trade or, or marriage or pretty women or whatever. They, they just go wherever ease is offered, <clears throat> rarely taking the hard road forged ahead. And they try to force God's actions so often instead of waiting on the Lord's timing and his plan for the sake of their own joy and happiness. And so what we have here in Jesus' 40 days in the desert is a reversal of the failure of the Israelites. Both the Israelites and Jesus crossed through the Jordan River. Both entered the arena of God's promised land. The Israelites failed to live up to God's standard, and Jesus demonstrate complete, demonstrates complete and utter and failless obedience to the Father. As a human, Jesus walked the walk that they walked, but without sin, perfectly in line with the Father. And so the entirety of his baptism and temptation are this demonstration of a new king coming. Many people uh, over our time make bold claims, right? We're entering into a, a presidential election. We're in the season where a whole bunch of bold claims get made, half of which will never happen regardless of who we put in office, right? That's not how Jesus operates. Jesus isn't even the kind of guy that just makes a claim and then backs it up. Jesus <clears throat> is the kind of guy who backs up his claims and then makes the claim, right? 
It's not put your money where your mouth is. It's here's my money. Now hear my voice. And so Jesus is baptized. He enters the the arena of God's kingdom on earth through the Jordan the same way the Israelites have entered it. And he goes through it in a way that is faithful and obedient for 40 days to echo the 40 years of the Israelites' failure. He over and over again gets it right. He accomplishes the obedience to God to live under his ways and his laws and his decrees the way that they never could perfectly, flawlessly, without fail, in the midst of complete hunger and desolation, with the full attack of the brunt force of the enemy, of Satan, at his, at his head. And he comes through victorious. And then he walks home and gets into the synagogue, and he opens Isaiah, and he reads it, and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Why can he say that? Because it is. Because he did it. Jesus does first and then speaks. He demonstrates perfect obedience and then claims it. And he stands up and says that it's all fulfilled. We see this throughout the other Gospels too. If you look at the Gospel of John, John, you have the names of the I am statements of Jesus. And they're all accompanied by signs. And the sign is always first. Jesus goes and he does a miraculous thing. And when there's questions about it, then he says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and life. I am the good shepherd. Those aren't just claims he makes where people say, well, prove it. Right? Jesus proves it, and then he makes the claim so that there is no doubt. He has this authority that, that no one else has because he alone actually did it. The baptism and the temptation of Jesus are proof of who he is. They are the Messiah announcements in actions rather than in words. As we begin to move into Jesus' public ministry, this passage is all about street cred, as one of my elders said in our session meeting this week. He establishes himself as the Messiah that was promised, and it makes him trustworthy and authoritative, not just to Israel, but to all of us who call upon his name. And as we move in the weeks ahead into the beginning of that ministry, we have to understand that his, his candidacy announcement isn't a candidacy announcement at all. It's an announcement of a rule and a reign that is, not that might or hopefully could be. Right? Jesus here in no uncertain terms is saying, I'm here, I've done what you couldn't do, I am the king, I am now here to rule. Let's, be, let's begin. Right? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you came not just as God incarnate to be among us, not just to grace us with your presence, but, Lord, that you took on the fullness of of human likeness in body and mind. That you came to experience the world the way we experience it. You came to suffer pain and hardship and emotional distress that you came to to suffer abuse so that for those of us who encounter that, we know that you know what we are going through. So that in Hebrews, when it says that we have a great high priest that is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, that has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, we can trust it. 
We praise you that you are not just a, a God who talks the talk, but one who walked the walk, who establishes yourself in all splendor and credibility so that we, as your people, can trust you. And so we pray for exactly that this morning. We pray that we might trust you more. We pray that as we hear from your word, the faithfulness that you exuded on this earth, that we might be a people that trust you. We pray that as we observe your temptations and how you broke free of them, that you also might empower us to break free of our own temptations, that you would allow us to see clearly the lies of the enemy in the midst of our lives and give us the power and the strength to say, not today. Shall worship the God, our Father, alone. Only Him should we serve. Strengthen us to do that. Empower us. Remind us. Give us grace when we stumble. Remind us that you love us. That you want us to thrive and to succeed. Because you care about us as your children. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.